right, we got some very good questions this morning. Thank you all who submitted questions. They kind of fall into a number of different categories. There are several unwelcoming. Each Sunday we say out our mission statement and loudly proclaim we celebrate diversity. Do you think that our congregation is truly welcoming? Is there anything that we should change? There's another question on the same lines. Will there be requirements to earn a welcome status as a transgender community? And what must we do to become more welcoming to the trans community? So I think about almost 20 years ago now, this congregation went through the welcoming congregation curriculum. And that was a program developed by the Unitarian Universalist Association to help educate and uh, uh, embolden local congregations to be more welcoming and affirming of the LGBT community. And uh, this congregation has always, I think, had a connection to the gay rights movement and non-gender binary movements. And uh, has actually done pretty good job of being visible and supportive in the community. That said, a lot has changed in our knowledge and in our culture in the last 20 years, especially around transgender and non-gender binary issues. So um, one of the things that we're looking at doing, in fact, we've already started, is that our intern minister, Denise Colley, <coughs> is going to be uh, leading a focus initiative next year around transgender ministry. And we are using the Transforming Hearts Collective um, curriculum, which is very recent, I think it's developed in the last year, uh, by a group of trans UU leaders, and um, is going to be a very impactful uh, program that I hope we can all participate in at, uh, at some level. So I don't know exactly how the, the format is going to go, but I know Denise is going to take the lead on this, but we all have an opportunity to learn more about each other and ourselves and our community and um, hopefully become a little more actively welcoming. And there's always a tension, I think, in Unitarian Universalist churches between tolerance, which is one of our uh, old school principles, tolerance and dialogue, tolerance and active welcoming. And we have, I think, been tolerant of a number of different diversities and a number of different communities for a long time, but we are slowly working at becoming more actively engaging and welcoming of folks. And things like introducing our pronouns, it seems a little awkward sometimes to some folks, and it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of difference to some folks at some times, but it's just one of those steps to get us thinking more about how we present to the world and how we make assumptions about ourselves and each other. And the less assumptions we can make, the more welcoming we'll be, because if we think we know everything about a person when we meet them, there's no reason to dialogue, there's no reason to ask questions, there's no reason to form genuine relationship. And so cutting away those assumptions and 
and opening ourselves up to the possibility of new knowledge and new insight from each individual person that we meet is really a sacred value in Unitarian Universalism and certainly here at Bradford. And um, I hope that we can continue to work on ourselves and our community so that we might be, again, truly more welcoming. I think those are good questions. Thank you. Why is it important to gather as a group instead of just praying privately in peaceful meditation? This has been kind of the, uh, an age-old question, right? Especially for Unitarian Universalists who have said for a long time that you don't have to, to go to church every Sunday simply to avoid hell. Um, and there have been uh, any number of our religious leaders and, and our religious influences over the centuries who have been isolated. I'm thinking of people like uh, Michael Servetus, who was essentially a, um, an isolated academic in terms of, at least in terms of his theological expression. But one of the beautiful things about our faith is that because we don't have a single mindset, we don't have a singular theology, the only way we can truly worship, the only way we can truly learn, is by being together. And that doesn't mean that we agree on everything. In fact, the beauty of this community and this faith is that we don't agree on everything. But worship and our our involvement with one another is central to our faith, simply because we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have priests, we don't have popes, we don't have a single theology that unites us. So it is the, the community to which we uh, pledge our, uh, our loyalty and, and our love through our covenant, our communal covenant, and um, we commit to working together on those social and spiritual issues that are important to us all. Now, it is still important, I think, that people do develop their own personal spiritual practices and um, prayer and meditation, and um, I do Reiki. Um, there are any number of ways that we as individuals can expand kind of our spiritual awareness and spiritual life um, but again, it's important that we are supported by and support the others in the community if we're really practicing our Unitarian Universalism. It's a question about, can we describe the role of pagan and earth-centered beliefs, practices, symbols, how they've contributed to Unitarian Universalism? Well, again, we, we come from a diverse history of theologies and spiritual expressions. And for a long time, both the Unitarian and Universalist branches of our, of our common faith uh, were Christian, though over the centuries they moved further and further and further away from institutional Christianity. Um, in fact, have been branded, both Unitarianism and Universalism have been branded heresies for at least 1,800 years now. The biggest development in terms of Earth-centered spirituality happened probably in the beginning of the 19th century 
when the transcendentalists, uh, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Louisa May Alcott and Henry David Thoreau, and um, there are a number, a number of uh, Margaret Fuller, basically anyone who was an intellectual in uh, mid-19th century New England was part of the transcendentalist movement and were all at least originally Unitarian. So Emerson was really influential, not just for us, but for, for uh, a lot of the United States in the way we, we thought about things like religion and nature and naturalism. And um, he had some very specific ideas about the self and the importance of reason and uh, experience, the individual experience as a test of faith and the claims of faith. And I think the further that Emerson and the Transcendentalists got into the experiential part of faith, the more they were drawn to nature and away from, you know, kind of the, the Christian institution. In fact, uh, Emerson left the Unitarian Church pretty early in his life because we were too Christian, we were too conservative, we were not exploring the myriad different ways that we can experience the divine. So that was kind of in the you know 1820s to 1860s probably would be a good good range, and that was kind of the first development or acknowledgement of naturalism in our in our faith. And then a century later, the Humanist Manifestos that came around also affirmed a real uh, importance on the individual person and individual conscience in contrast to allegiance to a specific theology or church institution. And that also opened up, opened our minds and our consciousness to different spiritual expressions. And then finally, I think, the next major push was the beginning of the environmental movement. Uh, we've had environmentalists, what would, we would consider environmentalists and conservation advocates in our history for a couple hundred years now, um, including people like John Muir and uh, Audubon and uh, uh, Rachel Carson. And when Rachel Carson wrote A Silent Spring, which was late 60s, I think, about DDT and the impact it was having on wildlife, that opened up some public advocacy work in terms of naturalism, and that aligned very nicely with what indigenous peoples and certainly the, uh, the Native American Indian population have been saying for centuries about uh, sustainability and conservation. And as kind of the neo-pagan movement developed, also about that time, say late 60s, early 70s, there was kind of a, a, an influx and a confluence of ideas. And so our expansive theology that accepted many different expressions of spirituality, our commitment to environmental justice, is a term that we know, now know it as, and some of the the other some of, some of the things that were happening just socially in terms of uh, empowering women for the first time, 
in our, uh, in our society all kind of combined to make Unitarian Universalism a, at least a friendly space initially and then an engaging faith um, for people who have earth-based or pagan theologies and spiritual expressions. And, you know, we still have a, uh, a pagan group here and who do uh, major solstice holidays, uh, solstice and equinox holidays, and, and assist with services um, when we have specific themes that, that deal with, you know, goddess imagery or polytheistic uh, spirituality. And so, what I like to say is that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as what you believe helps inspire you to be a better person and that what you believe doesn't negatively affect anyone else. And uh, so this has been a good home, I, I like to think, for, for the pagan community and certainly a safe space for them. And uh, hopefully that we, you know, we all learn something new from every different group that, uh, that comes to join us. It's a question about actually our, our ritual. Um, somebody says that the, uh, the passing of the peace, which is a, a greeting ritual that a lot of Christian churches participate in, which is the kind of the beginning of service, people are invited to stand and greet one another. Um, that is something that I know we have done here in the past. Um, we haven't done it in a while. It's not that it's not in line with our belief system or that we don't want people to greet one another, but there are a couple issues that I have with it. Um, one is logistic and one is personal. The logistic issue is that people often gather and greet one another for the 10, 15 minutes before service, and having a space designated for that within the service uh, sometime after the beginning seems to disrupt the flow of the service. So logistic issue. The other issue is that a lot of people are extroverts and really like turning and greeting and introducing one another, but some of us are not. And putting, putting somebody on the spot every week like that can be very uncomfortable and unwelcoming. So we're trying to strike a balance between encouraging the community to engage with one another, but also not putting people on the spot and forcing them to engage at a specific time within the worship. Um, that said, we do have a worship arts team that talks about these things. We have a suggestion box in the back. Uh, we would welcome people's input, and um, we've certainly talked about ways we might incorporate you know, different rituals into our worship service that, uh, that might serve that purpose people who really want to to engage but I would also say that we always have coffee hour we often have potlucks there are any other way any number of other ways to engage with the community um, outside of the, the worship time but good question thank you when did Unitarians and Universalists join and why it's a very short question with a very long answer but I will say just briefly that for basically 1,800 years, there have been these two heretical Christian ideas. Universalism, 
which says that a loving God would not damn his children eternally. So rejected the idea of hell and eternal damnation. And Unitarianism, which said, Jesus may have been a really important man, but he was not a God. And even if he was, he was not co-eternal with the Father. It doesn't make sense that the Son and the Father came out at the same time, right? So the Unitarians and the Universalists had basically underground or kind of heretical churches and organizations and scholars and lines of thought for almost 2,000 years. And in as early as the early 19th century in America, because of a lot of theological overlap um, and a lot of social overlap, churches started either welcoming each other, so Unitarian churches were welcoming Universalists, and a lot of, not a lot, a few of our prominent ministers of that time, like Thomas Starr King, who was influential in keeping California as a free state when it came into the Union, were affiliated with both the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America. This church itself was founded in 1861, in fact, by a group of Universalists who uh, formed a free, free religious society here, and then a couple years later joined with Unitarians and hired a Unitarian minister. So the origins of this church itself are both Universalist and Unitarian. And that is very exciting. It's not unique, though, that there are several dozen churches that had Unitarian and Universalist affiliation long before merger. Now, the associations, again, the Universalist Church of America, the UCA, and the American Unitarian Association, the AUA, joined in 1961, primarily as a way to unify um, their resources around the civil rights movement. But it's interesting to know that as early as the late 1920s, the youth groups of both the UCA and AUA were meeting together. So there was a whole generation of kids that grew up from their universalist churches and their Unitarian churches, but would go to summer camps and institutes and study groups um, and youth groups together. So it's not coincidence that 20, 30 years after the Unitarians and the Universalists started having their kids together, that those kids, when they grew up, brought the churches together. Now, there are all sorts of other things that we can talk about in that, um, but that's maybe the Cliff Notes version of how, how the Unitarians and Universalists became the Unitarian Universalists. I'm gonna take one more, and this is, uh, what is my favorite? Unitarian Universalist tradition or ritual, and why? And I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say two. Um, the first is the lighting of the chalice. There's one of our few uniquely Unitarian Universalist rituals, and it, it has a lot of different symbolism uh, attached to it. But what I love it, what I love so much about it, is it didn't start as a ritual in worship. It started as a logo design. Now. I'm a, among the many identities I claim, graphic designer is one of them. 
And the Bradford Hart logo is one of, uh, one of mine and, and Kimberly's. And the way this came about is in, uh, right prior to World War II, there were a ministry couple, uh, a Unitarian minister and his wife, the Sharps, Waitsteel and Martha Sharp. And they went over to Europe um, in 1939, so two full years before the United States entered the war. They went from Boston over to Paris and then to Prague and helped uh, refugees escape the encroaching Nazism and the Holocaust. They focused on children and um, liberal religious thinkers and scientists who were either Jewish or had spoken out against Hitler's regime and were in, in serious danger. And they needed documents that looked official. Now, nobody they worked with had travel visas. You couldn't get travel visas out of Germany. But um, they created elaborate forgeries of consulate documents and immigration papers and visas. And they wanted a logo that made it look more official. So they hired this wonderful artist. He was a, a Austrian, a gay Austrian Jewish artist who was uh, wanted by the SS because of his scathing political cartoons about Hitler. Incredibly offensive to the Nazi regime, as you can imagine. They met with him, his name was Hans Deutsch, and they met with him in Paris, and he created the first flaming chalice logo. And it was based loosely on the torches that would sit outside of Greek temples. And um, they didn't want it to be a cross because at that point, we had already moved away from Christianity uh, as an official kind of doctrine. Um, but they also wanted it to be kind of cruciform, so it would look like a religious symbol. So he created the, uh, the first flaming chalice logo. After the war, and we don't even know which church started doing it, but after World War II, churches organically began lighting a chalice at a time in their worship. And it, you know, it's never been an official thing that, that churches do, but I have been in literally hundreds of UU churches uh, for worship, and I would say 99% of them light a chalice and extinguish a chalice as part of the framing of their worship. Very quickly, my other favorite UU tradition is something we're going to be doing in a couple weeks. It's the Flower Communion. And uh, this also came from World War II era Europe, where the great Unitarian minister, Norbert Schampach, um, created the Flower Communion, where he invited people to bring flowers to decorate the church, and then at the end of the service, invited people to take a different blossom than the one that they had come with. Um, as kind of a symbol of the learning and communal exchange that happens within a union uh, worship. Uh, of course, Norbert Trumpet would be martyred later at Auschwitz uh, as a result of harboring Jewish refugees. Um, and it did, in fact, work with the Sharps uh, when they were in Prague before the before Prague fell. So it's a it's an extraordinary ritual with, you know, deeply steeped in our kind of communal culture, but also uh, 
you know, the work of a martyr and something that I really have always enjoyed growing up. You, you, that flower communion Sunday has always been very important to me. All right. Well, uh, if your question did not get answered, don't don't worry. Uh, I will be writing responses to some of the rest of these over the, the course of the next year in the quilt newsletter. Thank you all for participating. I really appreciated the questions. And um, yeah, and thank you. This has been fun. Go in peace. Go in love. Go with an inquisitive heart. Don't fear doubt. Don't fear uncertainty. Only fear that you think you might know everything there is to know. Go and question, and question always in love. May it be so. Grace be and amen.